0: Scripture reading tonight will come from 1 John uh, John 5 through 2, 2. 1 John 5 through 2, 2. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, he is faithful and just and just for just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the pituation for our sins, and not our only, but also the whole world.
1: Thanks, Jason. Good evening, church. Nice to be back with you tonight. We enjoyed a, a morning at Washington Courthouse, preaching for them. Aaron Davis is down there tonight reaching for them this evening. So remember Aaron in your prayers as he's probably engaged with them right now. There goes our little children. (laughs) So tonight we're going to finish up uh, the third part of our three-part series on the problem and solution to pornography. And uh, the preaching coming to a conclusion most certainly does not mean that the effort is coming to a conclusion. We're hoping that um, by engaging this problem and this challenge in our over-sexualized culture hasn't just uh, started and finished our effort, but really just begun. Um, hopefully we've begun a, begun a conversation about sexual purity and hopefully we can be of benefit and service to anyone um, you know, moving forward in this arena. Again, I want to continue to point you to two places. Two places for you to be aware of. First of all, uh, it is up and running and now live, our resource page on the website. Um, That's a great starting point for anyone, whether you're struggling. um, And on the website, you'll find resources not just for the problem of pornography, but you'll find resources that have to do with um, homosexuality or even gender confusion, and even resources that have to do with just pure, beautiful sexuality as a gift from God. There's lots of resources. There is... Um, There are tools on there that you can go to find uh, filters for your phone and your um, computer and things of that nature. So we want you to start there. And the second place we want to continue to point you towards is not just another website for help, but also a community of people. Our elders um, pray for this church diligently, together and individually. Um, They're not only praying for you, but they're open and willing to meet with you, to talk with you, to walk with you in your life. This doesn't just revolve around this issue that we're talking about tonight. So we're here. We want to help. Um, we want to continue to make resources available for you to, help, to you to help. And as uh, time continues, we'll see how we can continue to add to that. So up to this point, we have tried to establish what the problem really is, that there is a problem, that the problem is real. And at the same time, go under the hood and look under there and see what the problem really is, what's behind the problem. You might say... The problem causing the problem. And then we've established, as we did last week, truth about God and how He ordained sex and how it's supposed to be used. And tonight, what I want to get into is us seeking a solution. What is the way forward? If you find yourself in this problem, or if you have somebody in your life who is struggling with this, what can you do to help them move forward? That's what tonight is about, is empowering you with God-given biblical tools to help people move forward out of the problem of pornography. We have said that pornography is real, it's harmful, and it's powerful. And the strength of pornography is biological. It affects your brain. It is psychological, that it affects your emotions and even your intellect. But most of all, the strength of pornography finds its roots in its spiritual home, in its spiritual home. You see, the desire for sex is a drive that is intended to cause man and woman to then seek the covenant of oneness. The drive in us for sex is intended to push you towards the covenant of oneness and then to pursue intimacy where you are fully known and fully loved. And out of the covenant, the safety of oneness and the embrace of intimacy comes the fruit of which God is wanting us to express, which is the sexual union, the two becoming one, both in mind, body, and soul. When this is done, sex can be divine. And it's the ultimate parable of life, as we talked about last week, that as you see in God-given sex, self-giving, radical self-giving and dying to self leads to ultimate satisfaction. But what Satan has done is he has taken our desire for sex, our drive for sex, And he's lied to us about two things. Here are the two lies that come to us about sex. First of all, Satan will tell mainly young people that the covenant of marriage is oppressive and suffocating. So for me to say that sex needs to happen inside the safety, the confines, the covenant of marriage, to many young people's minds, what they hear is suffocating and oppressive rules. I don't want to go into this formal agreement that I can't get out of to just enjoy the pleasure of sex. That's oppressive. Satan lies to us that way. He's going to tell you that, that you can enjoy all the benefits of sex without any of the obligation of oneness or or marriage or covenant. And that's just simply not true. You won't enjoy sex. You might have sex. You might even have orgasm, but you won't enjoy sex the way God designed it if you don't understand the safety of covenant. You will never give yourself to a person until you know they won't leave. A lot of young ladies are doing this, and a lot of young men are pursuing this. And they're doing it to find affirmation, to find love, to find acceptance, and they will give their bodies to get in return some semblance of love, but you'll never know safety and intimacy until you go into the covenant of marriage that says, I'm not leaving. So that's what the covenant is for. The second lie is this. So the first lie is covenant in marriage. It's oppressive. Like, Why do I have to abide by these rules to enjoy a drive that I have? The second lie is this, that intimacy in marriage is not possible. It's not safe to do it. So that can happen either way. One way it can happen is you're not a person that anyone would want to be intimate with. Who would want to know you? Look what you've done. Look who you are. Look how you really are when, when you know, the, the shades are drawn and you're in your home and who you really are and, 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 and in your mind and in your heart. Who would ever want to know you? Satan whispers that. And the other thing he says is, it's just too much work. Why worry about it? I mean, intimacy just takes effort. And those of you that have labored in marriage for years and years know that it takes work to fight for intimacy daily. And so Satan will lie to you and saying the covenant of marriage is oppressive or intimacy is not possible. And when he gets you on the hook of believing that exaggeration, that lie, like he might be right, all of a sudden, guess what he does? He dangles options, alternatives to this. And the one we focused on in these three parts is pornography, but the options are endless. You can have just daydreams, lusting considering other things other than your spouse or other things other than if you're single, then Christ. You can do that. He can dangle people in your workplace or in your school. He can dangle a lot of different options, even alternative sexual lifestyles. He dangles. You know, that's why people run to alternative sexuality, because they believe the lie that it's not possible for them. And so they run to either the same gender or multiple people or they change gender. That's why they do that. Okay. So out of this, we've said that this is Satan's ultimate work, taking your God-given beautiful desires and deceiving you. And so what this does is this empowers the believer. Once you know his tools, his tactics, his tricks, so every time you feel a desire that might be sinful, every time, in that moment, you don't have to be scared of it or run from it. You can say, powered by the power of God, I can say, why am I feeling this? And if I'm having a desire that might be sinful, what you can look for now is not just um, shame and guilt, but you can look for the seed of godliness in that desire. What is really, what am I really after? What do I really want? And what we've said is the desire in pornography is not the desire for sex, but, God, but Satan is deceiving your desire for intimacy. He's convinced you that you probably can't have it or will never have it. And so he dangles pornography, which gives you A semblance of intimacy without any risk this woman on the screen will not reject me she will always want me and she'll always be there and so we defined last week intimacy I gave you the phonetic uh, understanding which is into me you see that's what intimacy means to be fully known by somebody and then fully loved by somebody is what intimacy really is and that's what really is supposed to happen in marriage and when that happens then you have all of the fruit of intimacy, like communication. And yes, the sexual union is a beautiful fruit of that as well. So we finished last week talking about how to cultivate intimacy and then uncovering the truth about God-given designed sex, which was that sex was created and designed by God. Once He made Adam and Eve, up until that point, day 1 through 6, or day 1 through 5, God said, it is good, it is good, it is good. He makes Adam and Eve. He says, multiply and fill the earth. The two become one flesh. And then God all of a sudden says, it's very good. Confirming that God is a male, right? Second time. you got to get the joke the second time. You know, Is it the delivery? It's not coming out well? Right? Okay. Or just too awkward to laugh in church about that? That's fine. That's cool. So God created sex. He designed it. And he said it's very good. And one of the mistakes we make in Christianity is say we can't talk about it because it's dirty. It's, it, it's nothing we can say about. No, God said it's very good. But here's the deal. The moment sin entered the world, the desires of mankind were broken, deceived, lied to. And so the Bible says that our desires, our ambitions, like, like the energies in us that, that we want things, are not trustworthy in and of themselves. So you have a desire tonight for something or tomorrow. God says, without my word guiding you, you ought not just trust your urges, your instincts, your desires. Those are not trustworthy because sin has broken them. And that's a powerful teaching tool for our culture today that says self-determination is the the, the God of our world. What do you feel like doing? Be who you want to be, right? You can be transracial now, apparently. You can just feel like being a race. And how many people are standing up for Rachel Dolezal right now and saying, if she feels right, why? Because the God of our culture is this self-determination. What do you feel like doing? And how dare anybody tell you you're not that? Rachel is not black. She's not. Because race, gender are sacred. Meaning they're from God and they cannot be changed. Bruce Jenner is biologically a man. He is. That's sacred. And sex is sacred as well. And so that's why, as a Christian, I'll tell you this. If I believe that race is sacred, you didn't decide it. You didn't choose it. It was given to you. If I believe that gender, you didn't decide your gender. It was given to you. Sexuality is also sacred. It's from God. You didn't invent it. And so I can no more approve a sexuality that is not designed by God because it's not sacred, such as like homosexuality or multiple sexual partners, as I can justify my own you know, licentious sexual life in myself. To approve one is to approve all alternative lives. Does that make sense? If I approve one, that means that I can then approve sleeping with multiple people even though I'm married, and I won't approve of that either. Do you see, does that make sense? Sex is sacred from God just like gender and race and culture, all that, sacred from God. Okay, stay away from that. The last part is this, that sexuality is restored in Jesus Christ, meaning that our deceived desires get redeemed in Christ, and the love that we've always been looking for is found in Christ, and so we then can come back to a healthy sexuality. So, tonight we've got to move forward. We've got to do some healing. What does it mean to find solutions? Most of what I'm going to say tonight applies to everyone. No, Every part of the first part is going to apply to everyone because we're going to talk about a biblical model of how to change. You know, self-change is sold throughout all of our world. If you go to Barnes and Noble or Amazon, you look like you try to find a book on self-help, you'll be overwhelmed about which one to pick. Self-help is everywhere. How to change. In fact, I believe people come to Christianity to change. And there's a biblical model, a biblical teaching on how change really happens. And it's not easy. But we're going to talk about that, and that applies to any sin that we engage in, that we have in our lives. So that's going to be for all of us, and then we're going to talk about at the end, very specifically, if you're struggling in pornography, here's steps you can take. Actual, practical, starting tomorrow, tonight, steps you can take. And so at this moment, I just want to say thank you to those of you that may not be struggling with this actual sin of pornography. Your patience, your endurance your willingness to support something like this allows us to teach in this setting so that those who really need it can get it. Okay. Does everybody make, does that make sense? Your willingness to be with us and support this allows this really important teaching to happen. So let's do this. Let's start here. Here are some questions you have to answer with me tonight before we take another step. Question one is, do you like what you are currently doing right now? If you're, If you have a sin that's near to you it may not be pornography it might be it might be lying it might be manipulation it might be bitterness it might be holding a grudge do you like what you're doing right now that's question one question two is is this how you pictured your life going is this right now what you're doing day in and day out every dime is this how you pictured your life going question three is if you continue doing exactly what you're doing today, will it lead you to where you want to be? Do you get those three questions? Do you like what you're doing? Is this how you pictured your life going? And if you continue doing exactly what you're doing right now, will it lead your life to exactly where you want it to be? Now, here's the deal. If you answered yes to these questions, then you should just tune me out. You should uh, I mean that seriously. You should just probably not listen. If you answered yes to these questions, and you probably don't need to listen to anything else. But if you answer no, we've got work to do. So in 1 John chapter 1, let's start in verse 5. Here's the biblical method of change. If you've ever wondered about how the the Bible teaches you how to change, here it is. So the purpose of 1 John was exactly what we see throughout, really, the Bible, verses 1 through 4. Look down specifically in verse four. John says this, and we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Isn't that interesting? That God knows what your deepest desire is, and He's writing to you so that you'll have it. You know, the unfortunate portrayal in you know culture of Christianity is that it's like oppressive to joy, that it kind of limits joy, that it's a. Uh, in fact, I was just talking to someone last week who had a Picture in their mind that what Christianity is, is you kill yourself for 60 or 70 years doing everything you can and then someday you drop dead of a heart attack and then you get to go to the pearly gates and then you take a deep breath and relax. That was his vision of what Christianity is. No no semblance of peace. Stress is a marker of Christianity. No semblance of joy. In fact, you ought to be grinding yourself to the bone because this ain't the time for that. That was his vision of Christianity. The Bible is radically different than that. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, John says, I'm gonna write this entire letter so that you will wake up to the thing your heart really wants. You know joy, seeking, is the seed of all sin? Seeking joy, seeking pleasure. I will enjoy my life if I go do this. And you continue in sin because you believe that it's going to at least give you some momentary feeling of joy, And so God has the true answer. Look in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. What restores joy to us? Fellowship with the Father. Now here's a little trivia question for you. The Greek word for fellowship is what? Does anybody know? You ever heard it? Koinonia? Anybody ever heard that word? We, we, we throw it around sometimes. It's koinonia. You know what the Greek word for intimacy is? Not a trick question. Koinonia, the exact same word. To know and to be known. Both elements mean intimacy. Meaning you know God, you've learned of Him, but God knows you, you confess to Him, you're open to Him. And in that, you have intimacy. And that's what brings us joy. And so what John does in this text that Jason read for us is he warns you about the fake alternatives of joy that feel like joy, but they're not really joy, and then the real path to joy. So let me rattle off these alternatives because you'll know them right off the bat. Look in verse 6. He says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Alternative number one, when you are in sin and wanting joy, here's the first thing that Satan will tempt you with. Hypocrisy, deception. He's going to he's going to tell you that if you are exposed for the sin that you're living in, it will ruin your life and you're better off just keeping it a secret. Right. That is a powerful lie that we believe. That is a powerful thing that Satan dangles in front of us, that if we will just hide, we can sustain this and it feels better. Now, the danger of that is that it temporarily works. It actually does. There's there's an embezzled joy in hypocrisy. That when you pretend that things are okay, that you're in the light, but you really live in the dark, the temptation to do that is that if I come out in the light, it's all over. It's just going to blow up. You know, this is the thing that makes us, you know, keep, keep going and keep going back to secrecy. Okay, the danger is that it temporarily works, but you find out that it's just fool's gold. The problem with this is that you're lying to other people, and guess what? Other people are counting on you, and you're lying to them. I just need to tell you that hypocrisy is a lie to people that are counting on you right now to not be a liar, that are counting on you to be genuine, true, and strong. And sometimes strong means taking down the fake wall that is nothing they can stand on and showing them the rubble and asking them to help rebuild it. That's strength. And this is a lie and it's not going to work. Let me show you the second one. So the first alternative to joy that will not get you there is deception or hypocrisy. The second one is in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. The second one is not deception, but dilution, uh, diluting sin, Not, not making it as big as what we say it is. Now, here's the lie. Here's the lie that you believe to continue in a problem like pornography or any other problem is what we tell ourselves is that it's really not that big of a deal. People aren't really hurt by this. You see, the danger of pornography is that we believe that it's a sin just against ourselves. And that nobody else is being hurt, right? Nobody else is being harmed, nobody else is being affected. I can just quietly participate in this because I've got a problem and nobody is being hurt. The danger of this is, it will perpetuate your risk taking. And all it does is build a bigger bomb that's gonna drop someday. That's all this does. When you believe that it's really not that big of a deal, you'll continue to dabble in it, and here's the problem: it builds a bigger and bigger and bigger bomb that is going to drop in your life someday. I wish I would have known this when I was like nine, by the way, or at least believed I probably did, but I was on the other side. The danger of, or the problem of this is that you're lying to yourself, and here's the here's the scary part: see, when you in hypocrisy, you lie to others, but you know what's going on. When you start diluting the sin and saying it's not that big of a deal, you're lying to yourself, and you are searing off the receptors to intimacy. You see, what you're creating is, I will be my own source for joy, and I will be my own source for life, because I can't trust anybody else, because what I have in my life is shameful. And so when you dilute your sin and say it's not that big of a deal, and don't pretend like it's not that big of a deal, what you're doing is lying to yourself and searing off your ability to receive intimacy, really what you're doing is killing yourself. Now, here's the third one, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, and the third one is not deception or delusion, but denial. When you simply just look at what you're doing and say it's not really a sin. I know people that, I mean, I read, you would not believe the number of articles that I read um, in the last six months from reputable psychological journals to men's health, that tell you that pornography is healthy for our country because it lets men get out their excessive energy, and we have less people killing people. That, 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 that was a logical argument from a psychologist from a major institution in our country. That if And here's what they did. They said, if you look at developed countries, where pornography goes, crime rates drop. That, they were making that correlation. Now, I think there's a correlation. There's not a causation. I don't think porn makes... Crime go down, you know what I mean? But they were saying, look, in our country, crime rates are dropping and pornography is increasing. It must make sense, right? That's like saying, um, what's a hot new thing? That's like saying um, organic food causes ADHD. Organic food has risen, right, in the last 15, 20, and so is the diagnosis of ADHD. Would you all agree with that? Stop eating organic food, it gives you ADHD. You see, correlation and causation are different. And what these people are saying is that pornography is not that big of a deal. It lets men express their energy. It just gets it out so they're not, you know, freaking out on other people. And that's a lie. And the lie that I hear most Christians say is that what I'm doing is natural. I'm just satisfying a sexual desire. I don't have the opportunity to satisfy it right now, so I'm going to use pornography to do that. The danger is you have a seared conscience, killing all of your joy receptors and creating a death cycle. And here's the problem with this. You're not lying to others or yourself. You're making God a liar. How? Because your distortion, sin, you're presenting as a norm. And when God says, listen, this is what the norm is, and you're saying, no, this is the norm, you're presenting to those that don't know God that God is a liar. That's a major problem. Okay, let me give you the true path quickly. Verse 7, we've got to walk in light, and then verse 9, we've got to talk in light. That's what we've got to do. Verse 7, he says, we ought to walk in the light. This means to live in transparency with God. See, this is not get a sandwich board, write your worst sins on it, walk out in front of people and say, I'm living in the light now. You can just know what I do. I don't care who knows. This is my problem. That's not what he's talking about. When he says that we ought to walk in the light, he started in verse 5 saying God is light. So God is not in the light. God is light. And then he said Jesus Christ is in the light. So what he's talking about is living in transparency with God. This is how you live with him. Walk in the knowledge that all things are naked and open before him. You want to have a powerful change motivator? Start to really believe that God knows all things and sees all things. That all things are naked and open before him. That he sees everything. So all of your visions of darkness and hiding are just an illusion. God knows. And when you start to believe that God knows and the fear of that hits you, It will either make you run from God or run to God. And the rest of this verse is going to hopefully teach you to run to God. Walk in the light. Now look what you get when you walk in the light. Let me tempt you with some benefits here. Verse 7. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, look at the very first thing you get. You you know, if I were writing this, the first thing I would have wrote was the blood of Jesus. I, I think most preachers would do that. Most Bible teachers be like, if you walk in the light, Jesus forgives you, right? We, we would kind of go there. Look at the first thing that John tells you you get when you walk in the light. Fellowship with each other. True, godly fellowship. This isn't potluck. This is gritty, down to earth, grace-filled. Hang in there when it's tough, scary, and really awkward with somebody who's starting to know me. You know that point when you want to back away, when someone starts to really you know, look behind the curtains and see who you are? To know not just what you're good at, but what you're not good at. Not just good that you've done, but bad that you've done. You know that point when you just kind of want to put up the guard and, and pretend and kind of maybe say a few jokes and run away? He's saying, hanging in there. That's what you get. Okay? Here's the deal. When you start to walk in the light, when you live under the weight of the reality that God knows all things, and your life is in front of him, and that humbles you deeply, and you draw near to God, you will start to find. I'm not just talking about generic people that call themselves Christians. and I'm not just talking about coming to church on Sunday, although I believe we have a very real group here. That's something I love about us. I'm talking about when you start living this way, you'll start drawing to yourself, and God will bring to you people that are real with him. It may be few in number. It should be, really but you'll start to connect with people who are living in the light, who also know the fear of standing before God and the, the, the weight of his love, but also his justice. You'll start to bring people into your life like that. And I think a lot of us have Christian fellowship that looks more like potluck and less like crying and praying together because we're not necessarily willing to walk in the light and find those others that are also out there too. That may be why you're missing that. He promises that. And in the light, he says you have fellowship, and here's what you get. You get both Community and accountability. Now, what two things could be more important for somebody struggling with pornography than a community to stop being lonely and an accountability to hold yourself to a standard? That's what you get. You see, our culture loves to talk about community. We love to talk about being known and loved and cared for. But the moment we start talking about accountability, we run. We run. Accountability is not the abnormal in Christian life. You know, especially in the problem of pornography, one of the first steps is accountability partners. You know, somebody that knows what you look at on the internet. Accountability is not the abnormal in Christianity. Accountability, people knowing you, holding you accountable, asking you, Anthony, how are you doing with lying or pride or greed? How are you doing with that? Are you doing okay? And me going back to them saying, how are you doing with this, this, and this? That's the norm in Christian life, not the abnormal. And that's what he's saying you get. And the second thing you get is access to the blood of Christ. And this is where Christ's blood flows freely. And I think what he means by this is that your guilt, even though Christ died for you, will abound in secrecy. You will have no connection if you live in secrecy to the relief of the grace of God. You just won't touch it. It won't be near you. So let's look at the second part, verse 9. We've got to walk in the light, live in the light, under the light. Verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we've got to walk and talk in light. This means that we practice real, honest, true, brutal confession with God and occasionally with those that are close to us, real confession. I'm not talking generic, God, I really struggled today, or God, I'm sorry I didn't read my Bible enough, please forgive me. I'm saying... God, I had this thought today, and I don't know why. And please help me understand. I'm very sorry for that. Please. See, confession means to speak in agreement with God, to speak in conclusion as though you agree with what God has said. That's what confession means. So confession is to say, I agree with what you're saying is wrong, God. I agree with you. Think about it in the the sense of a court of law. If a crime has been committed, there are facts and details that have happened with a crime. Confession is not, I've done bad things to maybe the prosecutor. Confession is, I agree with the facts of this case that I have done these actual facts. Do you see the difference? It is hardcore. It is real. It is authentic. I agree with God. So here's what it is. Confession is, my problem, my pornography is wrong. It's sinful. It's harming me. God, it's hurting me, it's hurting you, and I'm choosing to find intimacy in other places than you, God. That's what I'm doing right now. And the question is, when you confess, do you align your mind like this? Or are you still turning to these alternatives like hypocrisy or deluding sin or even denying it? You'll confess like this when you understand the truth of verse 9. There are two qualities of God. You see in verse 9, if we confess our sins... Look what it says about God. He is two things. What are the two things? He is faithful and he is just. Now pause for a minute thinking about your own struggle, your own sins, and just erase yourself for a moment and just think about God. These truths about God are objective realities whether you believe them or not. Whether you agree with them or not, these are true about God. He says that God is faithful, meaning loyal, reliable. You can count on him. He does not flake, okay? God does not, you know, hang out and then say, eh, never mind. I was just kidding about that. He is completely faithful. But the second one is one you really, I think most of you know God's faithful. but the second one I love that you just got to get. God is also what? Just. But what is he just to do in this text? Forgive and cleanse. Let me explain this to you. If you're afraid to come to God boldly, openly, truthfully, I think it's because you don't know that God is just, fully just. You see, if you're afraid that God is still going to ask for payment from you for your sins, you misunderstand His justice. God has already received the payment for your sins. So, if I'm in Christ and I come to God when I'm sinning, and I'm afraid because I think he's going to zap me or he's going to punish me or he's going to do something to me, and I don't confess, in my mind I'm thinking God is expecting a double payment for a single sin. And God is just. Meaning if he still held you accountable for those sins to pay for them, even though Christ died, God would be unjust requiring two payments for one. Does that make sense? So God is just saying, I've received the payment in Christ Come to me. I'm faithful and I'm just. You don't have to be afraid. And what are the two things he does if you, to those who will come to him in confession? First, he forgives you. That means he takes, he absorbs the cost and then sends the cost away. There's no other cost to be absorbed. But the second thing he says is that he'll cleanse you. He's cathartic with your sins. Meaning he exp- it gets rid of it. He purges it out of you. We don't have time to explain all that, but just believe that that is a truth of God, that He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. And let me have you think about this way. If you're not practicing real confession with God, not walking in the light, then pornography or any other sin is not your biggest sin. Your biggest sin right now is unbelief. That's your biggest sin if you are afraid to confess, whether it be pornography or lying or greed or pride, if you're afraid to come to God and fully confess that sin, your biggest sin is not pride or pornography. That's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem right now is unbelief in who God really is. That's the biggest problem. You've got to get that solved in what you understand about who God is, and then you will solve the rest of these problems. Does that make sense? I don't want to go too fast if you don't understand that. Your biggest problem is unbelief in who God is, not pornography or lying or pride. It's not that. Okay. And the last part is the motivation, which is, as you've seen, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but for the whole sins of the whole world. The only motivation that will actually draw you into this life with God to leave Hypocrisy and denying your sin and all that and move into real walking and talking in the light is the advocacy and the propitiation of Jesus. Who Jesus was in his life and death and who Jesus is in his resurrection and ascension. Life and death, he was propitiation. Perfect life, perfect death. Resurrection and ascension, he's your advocate sitting at the throne of God saying, he or she is one of mine, claiming you, walking along beside saying they're mine. Does that make sense? So the work of Jesus Christ before and after the cross is the motivation that draws you out of the lies that aren't leading you to joy into the true path of joy. Okay. Let me buzz through quickly what to do. Okay, you're struggling with pornography. That's your sin right now. We've gotten to the bottom of it that it's really a d- difficulty with intimacy and you're afraid of that most likely and you've got to drive for sex that Satan is manipulating. Okay, what do we do? Step one. If you're not struggling, remember these as well because you can help somebody rigorously, unrelentlessly, violently. Own and confess it. Stop playing with it. Stop tickling around with it. Stop stop, dancing around what the problem is. And this goes for any sin, but you've got to violently own it. This is wrong. It's got to become untouchable. Violently wrong, own it and ruthlessly confess it. Ask God to reveal even the still dark corners in your heart with His light. Acknowledging and knowing that it's going to be painful and it's going to be hard. Ask Him that. I dare you. See what happens. God, show me the darkness that's in my heart. I want it gone. The second thing, you turn to Christ when you do this so when you're in this moment of confession is where Satan wants to pounce and say, ha ha, got you, look, you're no good. Who would want you now? And in that moment when he says, who would want you now, you turn directly to Christ and you find grace for guilt, peace for your shame, power and strength to overcome your sin, and you seek to be transformed, not just modified. If you're struggling with sin and it happens to be pornography or any other sin, your goal has to be fundamentally, constitutionally, in my fiber, I want to be a different person. Not just, how do I modify slightly this behavior even though I really, really want to and I, you know, it's just going to hang on there. Boldly go to God and say, I want to be changed. I want to be different. I want to be sanctified. Pray for transformation and sanctification, not just behavior modification. Turn to Christ for the power to do that. Okay, rigorously own and Confess. Turn to Christ. Number three, seek external help. Now, the temptation in this sin of pornography is internal help, meaning I'm going to solve this myself. Well, self got you into this problem, and this is a truth for all sin, really. But seek external help, and I would encourage you to start with, if you need, biblical counseling, a real counselor. And we can help you. I can help you find a good, and when I say biblical, I mean somebody that's going to teach you from the Bible, but also counsel you, not just a counselor. Counselors are good, and there are good counselors out there, but sometimes counselors just want to, you to pay them $45 or $90 to talk about yourself for 45 minutes. And believe me, we love to do that in our culture, so you know, we might do that. But biblical counseling will listen, empathize, and confront you with truth and help you change. And what they do most often in biblical counseling, I don't have time to unpack this for you, but as they deal with what psychology calls your core beliefs. Anybody ever heard of core beliefs? Have you seen Inside Out yet? Anybody? No? No? Go see. It's really cute. They actually like reveal this concept in this movie. But core beliefs are the three or four main things that you believe about yourself. Something, when you're young, usually kind of shapes that memory where you learn that you are... It becomes I am statements, like I am weak, or I am strong, or I am this, or I am that. And you see the rest of your life through this lens. And most often, people that struggle with pornography have a core belief that I am unwanted. Something in their life has convinced them that they're not wanted. And that core belief colors the way they see every other experience in life. So whether it's a church interaction, or a fellowship afterwards, or you go to the movies, or you do something, you see the rest of your life through your core beliefs about who you are. And what biblical counseling does is it changes those core beliefs, not based upon your mind, but the mind of God about who you are. Okay, I can explain more of that later if you have questions about it. So seek counseling in your external help and seek community with those who are actually walking the light, those that will practice grace but also accountability with you, that will understand and empathize but also confront and hold you accountable. That's what you need in your life. And in that, you'll get accountability and strength, But in those relationships, you'll also get to serve. You see, your work, your willingness to do work on your own sins will someday become the strength for another person to do theirs. There's a great author named Henry Nguyen that wrote a book. Uh, He he was a theologian, a teacher at Notre Dame in psychology for many years. He wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. It's a beautiful writing. What he means is that out of your own work, out of sin, Is where you actually develop the strength and the wisdom to help somebody. Most of us want to be like servants and and helpers, like without the work, you know, without any, any, any exposure, right? You don't need to know anything about my life. I just want to help you. But the idea is out of your own work is where you learn to help others. Remember Jesus in Matthew 7 when he was telling you how to take the speck out of your brother's eye? What was the first thing he said to do? Take something out of your own eye. He wasn't saying who you think you are, don't help people. You was saying, go through the process, the painful process of taking something out of your eye, and then you'll learn how to be gentle, but also forceful to get something out. You'll know how to do it. That was his point. Okay, last point. Y'all have been so good. You've got to, as I said, rigorously own and confess, turn to Christ, seek external help. But here's what you've got to do if you want to overcome this sin. You have got to establish a higher hope. You've got to have a higher hope. You see, we all, every one of us, turn to our close-kept sins for indulgence. You know the word indulgence? The word indulgence means temporary satisfaction. That's why Hebrews says that we ought to lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us, that's so close to us. We all have that. It might not be porn, but it's something. And we all turn to our close-kept sin for indulgence, seeking that satisfaction. We do this because our sins whisper an idea of comfort. And we have a hope in those sins. that We know that they're not going to last forever. We know that they're just going to be temporary. But we still have a hope in that sin that it will give me what my heart really wants right now because I'm so restless. So give me some comfort, sin. You need a higher hope than your sin right now. Okay? A better hope. Let me give you a few if you're struggling with porn. Number one, can you please have a hope to see the pornography industry absolutely destroyed? I mean eradicated from the world. Done. Can you be so passionate that there not be another man or another woman in this world that gets trapped into the lie of pornography and ruins their life, their marriage, their kids, their spiritual life. Can you have the hope that it will just be eradicated from this world? Can you get passionate about that? That no one else will hurt like you're hurting right now. That no one else will live in the secrecy and the fear that you're living in right now. Have that hope. And then have a hope that there will not be one other person, one other child dragged into this industry and beaten and used and drugged and with a gun to their head, forced to smile to have three days of sex to produce a 45-minute video where she looks like she's having fun, but her guts are falling out. Can you have that kind of hope? That it will be gone from this world. It's disgusting. It's hurting people. It's crushing people. And it might be crushing you. Can you set that hope that it will be gone? That's the first one. The second hope I want you to set is the potential for intimacy that's in front of you. Now, anybody in here been married uh, 30 years? Anybody up to 30? 40? 50? Anybody 60 yet? No, not yet? All right. Would you agree that intimacy, first of all, takes work, but the beautiful fruit of marriage is always in front of you? Can married people agree to that? That, that there's beauty in front of you? Okay, there's beauty in front of you in marriage. Whether you're married right now or you're not married, you need to put in front of your mind the potential of what intimacy is gonna to bring to you. Put that there. If you're not married, you should start right now praying every day for the person that God wants you to marry. You start praying for them. Now, I'm not talking about the unicorn out there, like the one person that's, that doesn't exist. It's not real, okay? I say, it's not real. There's not a unicorn. They don't exist. You know, I know Lisa's the one. She's still here. She's right there. You know, she hasn't left yet. That's how I know she's the one, you know. And she's, she hasn't left yet. That's how I know. You know, there's no other unicorns. It wasn't like, you know, I, I convinced her I was rich, and she said yes, and then I told her I wasn't rich, so she's still here. Pray for that person, though. Pray for her. Pray for him. If you are married, and you're just surrounded by fear, scared to death you got to put something higher than the walls of fear that says i believe there's going to be fruit to enjoy here soon and i'm willing to do the work and it's going to take you time months years tears and hurt okay married or not married you've got to have a deeper and better hope in front of you than just what you have right now but ultimately at the end the highest hope you can have is your ultimate lover one of the most interesting analogies of jesus in the new Testament is not that he's king of a kingdom, and not that he's lord of a universe, but that he's the bridegroom of a bride. He's the bridegroom of a bride. He's the lover your heart has always wanted. You know, I think so many husbands are bad husbands because they don't know how to be a wife. They've never learned how to be the bride to Jesus Christ the groom. You want to learn how to be a good husband, learn how to be a good wife. Understand that with Christ. He is your ultimate lover. You see, what a scene in the world between lovers, biologically, psychologically, emotionally, intellectually, is just a parable to our lives spiritually. So much so that in heaven, the need for marriage is actually not even there. Jesus said, in heaven, you're not married or given in marriage. Can you imagine that? That the drive in us is not even there in heaven. That all of our desire for intimacy and satisfaction is so raptured in God that it's not even there. How amazing. How amazing. His love, his marriage, his companionship, his intimacy and ecstasy, his support, his encouragement is what your soul is really longing for. And so when you don't have this from a spouse, whether you're married or not, if you don't have that right now from a spouse, stop running to the mirage of pornography or anything else and run to Christ who is your true lover. Use the absences in your life to fuel spiritual growth, whether you're married or not. Turn the sin of pornography on its head and make it not just your trap, but the power that drives you to Christ. You see, that's what happened at the cross. All of evil thought they were winning. They were laughing. They were chuckling. Look, Jesus is on the cross now. Ha <laughs> ha! We're winning. And Jesus is saying, they're saying, yes, you think you're winning. And this sin that's putting me on the cross, I'm dying, but I'm destroying you. Take pornography, turn it on its head and let pornography destroy pornography as it drives you to Jesus Christ, your ultimate lover. You see, you can only know love by seeing love. You can only know you are loved by watching what someone does. Words quickly become just flattery, but action will speak loud. You see, when we started this series, we said that visual imageries of pornography can have a physical effect on your brain. Remember that? Seeing naked people can affect your brain. Our brain is shaped by what we see. But I'm here to tell you that there is no greater power in the world than Jesus Christ. The pornography that you may have watched is not more powerful than God. You are not a victim to porn. The visual stimulation that you've experienced because of nudity is nothing, nothing in comparison to the visual stimulation of Christ's display of love for you on the cross. Your mind can physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually be changed when you see Christ crucified. Listen to these texts. Romans 12 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Colossians 3 says, You've put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Galatians 3.1 says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was crucified to people that never saw Christ on the cross. But it was before their eyes. Ephesians 1, Paul said, I pray that your eyes will be opened to see the hope of his calling. In 2 Corinthians 3, listen carefully to this. You want to know how to change, listen. And we all, with an unveiled face, that means in the light, being honest, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Patient, diligent effort to see Christ in all of His glory is a lifelong pursuit. And it's the only pursuit that will transform you From a deceived participant in sin that is unsatisfying to an empowered believer in Christ. This is what it means, as John said in John chapter 1, that we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. His life, Jesus' life, was your gift of righteousness, his perfection. His death was your sacrifice in your place. His burial was your trailblazer going to where you were afraid to go. His resurrection was your hope that you can be redeemed in this life. His ascension is the confirmation that you have an advocate that is by your side today saying, he or she is mine, I want them, I accept them, bring them to me. And when you see him in all of his glory and dwell on him and meditate on him and think about him, you'll be transformed. I think that's exactly what Paul did when he said, have you considered the length, the width, the depth, and the breadth? All the angles of Christ. Let the image of him be the conquering image, not just of your mind, but of your soul. Let it change your life today and forever. Let's stand and sing.